Hello everyone, it's January 17th, 2022. So what's going on with that leaky Soyuz? Well, NASA and Roscosmos have worked out a plan. Some not so good news is Virgin Orbit's failure to reach orbit and ditto for ABL's RS-1. They didn't quite make it, but I'm sure they'll try again and let's do the show again and lift off. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. There was an interesting idea one company had that I was almost going to write up for short and sweet. It's, a, it's basically a Japanese company, uh, Axel Space. And their idea, they signed a contract with some other company, Space Situational Awareness is so like hot right now, <laughs> is that basically they do their Earth observing. And then anytime their satellites are not doing Earth observing, they just spin them around <laughs> and do SSA. They do earth op- yeah, earth observation stuff like you know checking out vegetation and you know water levels and you know where ships are and things like that and then when they're not actively doing any of that go and look for other things in space to be able to track their positions and get a better handle on what's where and all that okay because when I hear space situational awareness I think of your I think of mostly still looking at the earth so I was kind of confused mm. because that seems to be a lot of you know what happens but yeah uh-huh. I suppose actual space situational awareness include you know means <laughs> looking into space this lot of fun right you know point your cameras down and then when you're not actively doing that point them <laughs> not necessarily up but you know up and around <laughs> yeah does that mean that they would actually turn the spacecraft around because that seems like it might i don't know yeah. i mean i suppose if you're just using control moment gyroscopes it's not a big deal but yeah if not you're going to be spending fuel yeah, that's my understanding they, they literally will change the attitude so that its cameras are no longer like now pointed you know elsewhere in space to be able to do good stuff with that and and, and i guess i guess the reason why you know eo satellites aren't always getting pushed 100 percent is because you know there's just so much Earth. There's not always a ground station you can downlink to. And so, like, not all the EO people are doing stuff for, um, you know, just trying to get a, like, a Landsat, right? Like, let's, let's cover the entire planet, you know, every N days or however long it takes for them to do it. And instead, they might be like, you know, a customer wants you to image such and such. It's like, okay, well, we don't have a satellite there yet, but give us a couple hours and our one of our small fleet of you know, satellites will be able to do it. So, Okay, so in the news, uh, the Soyuz MS-22 rescue. So uh, we have a rescue plan now, right? Now that uh, there's a Soyuz on orbit that cannot come back with people in it, but Maybe you don't have to put people in it. Uh, well, may, yeah, maybe is a is an interesting word there because that's totally true. Um, so I wrote up a little bit of uh, like reminder, like context material, and I titled it previously on as the Soyuz turns. Um, <laughs> so right, this is MS twenty two. It sprung a leak in the outer loop of the coolant system, um, and uh, I think it was. Our last episode in December, uh, I put a, a GIF of the coolant spraying out into the show notes. I thought it was really nice. The new information in this context is uh, is new to us, but it's it's not that new to the world. So I don't know if you guys saw that and immediately thought micrometeoroid, but when I saw it, I immediately was like, yeah, micrometeoroid, easy peasy. Um, so they've confirmed that it was a micrometeoroid strike, um, not by direct observation, but just by engineering analysis, like where is the leak and what do you have to do to get to it? Um, And so they're approximating uh, a micrometeoroid striking Soyuz at seven kilometers per second. Uh, That's that's 15,600 miles per hour, just screaming. Um, And so that should immediately tell you this is not uh, something that was in orbit of Earth. This is something coming in from uh, from a near Earth object sort of orbit. Well, it's actually traveling below orbital speed, right? But it all depends on what direction it's coming from and so forth. But sure, I can. Uh, yeah, I can be a little more specific and say that it's uh, it hit from the rear uh, from retrograde. So yeah, it's going seven kilometers mm. faster than orbital speed ish. I, I doubt it came in directly from retrograde, but it's it's not moving slower than ISS, right? Um, right. So uh, on-orbit repair is like totally out of the question. First off, this is too difficult of a location to get to uh, on an EVA. I mean, think about 
uh, climbing all the way down the Soyuz. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Soyuz is, Soyuz I are not designed with handholds on the outside because that's that's not what they're there for. So, you know, you could um, stand on the end of a boom or something, but it just, it's, it's a nasty position to actually get any work done in. Um, even if they could get there, the actual repair is a little bit of a nightmare. I mean, remember the only point of this coolant loop is to have a hollow passage through the middle. So if you're going to weld it or tape it or, you know, do something to repair it, you have to be able to maintain uh, the flow of coolant through it. And to, to do that acceptably is just unlikely to be doable um, without a lot of extra study on the ground. Um, and then on top of it, even if you could repair, even if you could get there, even if you could repair it, um, it's probably too dangerous to top up the coolant reservoir anyway, you know, yeah. just on a, on a fairly improvised EVA. So it's not something that's worth doing. And also one thing that really kind of struck me, I, I'm sure you guys mentioned this on the show, but they were getting ready to do an EVA from the U.S. segment when this happened. And so mm. they had to delay that EVA. Do you guys know what what stage of prep they were in? I mean, I don't think that they were in suits, were they? They were depressurizing and everything, yeah. right, David? They were depressurizing. Wow. Well, we knew that they were, I mean, it sounded like that they were at least in the airlock and probably, yeah, depressurizing and maybe suiting up and all of that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why- it, it was a US EVA, is that right? No, no, no. It was a Russian EVA. Okay. They were going to do more era stuff. That damn radiator, they just can't grab it and bring it over. <laughs> they just keep getting stymied every time. But at, at I every, mean, it's uh, sabotaging nearby fellow components to keep from mm -hmm. being worked on. So, But that, that's ironic that you bring that up because um, before when you were saying, once I heard, you know – what had happened, I was just immediately like micrometeoroid. And because it happened while they were preparing for a Russian EVA, I was speculating that I think it might have been something else. And I don't necessarily buy the micrometeoroid narrative. Although hmm. it sounds like it's been more than confirmed at this point. So, I mean, they, they see the hole and everything. Tell me more about that instinct, though. I mean, you're not thinking sniper. Um, no. <laughs> but are you thinking like they're depressurizing the airlock and something goes flying out of the airlock? N not even that something was necessarily flying there, but just that you are you have connected systems. Yeah, and you're so doing you things. prepare for an airlock and some malfunction happening to the Soyuz that's still connected to the Russian orbital segment ends up leading to its coolant pipe bursting. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, I think that's a fair instinct. Um, even though it, it seems to be incorrect, but yeah, sure. I, I, I think that's a great, a great line of thought. So, so we finally, after weeks of wondering what are we going to do or, you know, what is Roscosmos and, uh, NASA going to do about this? Uh, we finally kind of come together or they've settled on a plan essentially. And so the idea is that MS-22, the leaking Soyuz will return uncrewed, uh, quote unquote, a week or two after MS-23 arrives. Okay. And I'll talk more about MS-23 coming uh, in, in a little bit. And so uh, the reason why MS-22 will come back to Earth on its own is because with that coolant loss, you could end up getting uh, really hot temperatures greater than 40 degrees C, uh, along with high humidity, and you're staying in there for a while, and you you would have your cosmonauts and astronaut in you know big bulky suits. And so it's just a very dangerous environment. And so the idea is that they're going to put some temperature and sensitive cargo and experiments in there and send it back. And so the descent capsule will make it back to earth and, you know, maybe they'll be able to do some uh, forensic analysis. And so it looks like where the leak was is kind of closer to where the, uh, the, the descent capsule meets the service module, the uh, unpressurized part with all the instruments and all that stuff. Although then again, I mean, they already got a picture of the hole, so I guess they might be done with forensic analysis. So I don't know. So this MS-23, excitingly, will be launched uncrewed. And so right now they've got a date of February 20th. And this would be the first uncrewed Soyuz since 2019, which was uh, MS-14. And that one was specifically testing the uh, launch abort system on Soyuz 21A. So you don't want to do uh, that kind of test necessarily with meat bags on board. The original crew for MS-23 uh, will be bumped into the future. Not canceled. They'll come on orbit eventually. But Oleg Kononenko, uh, Nikolai Chubb, and NASA astronaut Laurel O'Hara um, – will not obviously be coming up on this uncrewed craft. And so the MS-22 crew, which is also a pair of uh, uh, 
uh, Roscosmos uh, cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut, uh, Sergei Prokopiev, Dmitry Pedelin, and uh, Frank Rubio, they're going to get an extended stay because the idea of this new one coming up and then they immediately go down um, doesn't quite make uh, sense necessarily. And so it's tough to say it's beyond, quote, several months. Uh, it's too early to say, you know, later this year at some point. And what's neat about how this is all going to play out, right, is that the uh, MS-23 is going to come up. It's going to dock. And then the reason why it'll still take, you know, maybe a week or two before MS-22 leaves is that they need to transfer cargo, uh, including especially the seat liners, right? Because remember, when you you land, you know, you do a fairly rough little landing uh, in a Soyuz when you return to Earth. You know, I mean, they got to fire little rockets at the last bit. So you're hitting the ground, I think, like 20 miles per hour or something. And so you've got these custom seat liners that are molded to your body to basically absorb the shock along with other things that they do to make the landing safer. What I think is really cool is that these seat liners, like what if the worst case scenario possibly happens? Because it's not February February 20th as we're recording this, right? That's a month away. So what if there was a catastrophe right now and they needed to do an absolute wild abort, right? I feel like this is a this is a David question, right? <laughs> He'd ask like, what if they needed to go right now? They, you know, the the current plan is that Rubio's seat liner, his custom seat liner, is currently in the Dragon capsule, Crew-5's Dragon capsule, while the Cosmonauts 2 are still sitting in MS-22. So if it if the worst-case scenario happened and, you know, they knew it would be a loss of crew staying on station and everybody needs to get off board, then you would have that scenario we talked about of having an extra crew member in the Dragon returning to Earth. And then if you wonder, well, you still got two people going into this uh, going to be baking hot MS-22 capsule. Well, you have taken Rubio out of there. And so with only two humans in there, it'll be a less uh, hostile thermal atmosphere, right? Because you're taking away a uh, hundred watt, uh, you know, thermal oh. uh, <laughs> power plant. Yeah. 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 And well, so, so the, the, the temperatures inside with three people, um, initially they were saying um, something lower. Today I'm seeing temperatures potentially over 40 degrees Celsius uh, with high humidity. And I think when this first broke, they were saying something like 30 to 35, which is uncomfortable, but but bearable. Mm-hmm. Um, 40 degrees, especially with high humidity, it, like that can kill you, you oh. know, depending on how long you're exposed to it. Um, and it's really interesting that, yeah, you just, you, you take out this hundred watt light bulb and you're, you're good. Like it's, it's gonna <laughs> suck. This is in case that like they've specifically said, this is only if we're abandoning ISS, if something, you know, uh, if Sandra Bullock shows up and we need to leave, <laughs> um, the dragon can take multiple crew members. It sounds like they probably want to limit how many additional crew members are in there without, um, without like proper seat hardware. But I mean, and, like they've got some sort of seat hardware in there, right? The, the liner, needs to they're not just going to duct tape it to the floor so like there's there's some structure that they can put a person in but you know maybe just one you know maybe the minimum that we can that we can tolerate and like i i love the concept of understanding the constraints here and saying hey you two you're gonna have a tough ride but you can do it um Mm -hmm. it's better than choking to death on iss um as space shuttle debris is coming around. Yeah, for sure. And that's why, you know, yeah, hopefully this will not be needed. But it's very good to know that uh, bases are covered right now. Right. And, and worst case scenarios yeah. are still, you know. Right. I, I, I wrote that as the lifeboat coverage isn't too small, um, but bases are covered uh, also. <laughs> Probably <laughs> yeah. a better way to, to write that. <laughs> No, no, I dig. Yeah. And, and, and SpaceX has been great, you know, because this is, you know, them asking to, you know, change the the con ops of uh, a return to Earth in their vehicle. And they're they have been, quote, extremely responsive to these kind of uh, requests. And so and why wouldn't they be? They they want to show how valuable their vehicle is like they SpaceX really wants Dragon to be um, a popular and trusted vehicle. So this is such a great opportunity for them to show that, Hey, yeah, great. Mm. If we can, they probably don't want to have to rescue somebody, but if they did have to rescue somebody that that's a pretty cool feather in their cap, like I'm sure they would Mm. be quite happy to do so. And so that's kind of where we are with the uh, situation on board. And, uh, and also it's worth 
uh, noting just, uh, I just love that, uh, Sergei Prokopiev, uh, who's up on orbit right now, uh, he'll be rejoined by his stabby, stabby EVA mate, Oleg Kononenko, uh, when they come up, uh, eventually. And so that'll be, that'll be great. Hopefully they'll overlap. I'm sure they will. And so, yeah. And, and just to really wrap things up, uh, I thought it was interesting that there was a, uh, there were unofficial reports, uh, floating around initially about a different type of mission, um, where they would actually send Kononenko up on his own. And then he would just get the two cosmonauts in MS 23s, good functioning temperature controlled capsule or spacecraft while rubio would still then pile into the dragon for a return a uh, five astronaut return yeah borisov uh basically dismissed that 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 was never approved and so all the while too in mid-february crew six uh was is, was scheduled to fly to the station and so i don't know exactly what's going to happen in terms of that scheduling there but uh you know, keep an eye out, and I'm sure we'll get some updates in the coming weeks. My guess is that it got delayed with everything else. I think everything got bumped back a little bit. That'd be the most sensible thing. I mean, you're doing this complicated orchestra on orbit. You know, why add another crew there? I can think of one good reason. Uh, if you can fly that with two empty seats, that that seems like a really good thing mm. to do. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think that that's a, a high priority kind of fix. Cool. Well, that's. Uh... A good update. Good to know they have a plan. Uh, so now let's move on to uh, Failure Fest. So, we, yeah, we have to talk about Virgin Orbit um, as well as ABL uh, and their failures. So we have two failures. Um, I think Virgin Orbit maybe got more press for sure. Yeah, they had some problems getting during their, well, what would you call it? Is it considered a second stage? I, I don't know when you launch from a plane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we could just call it upper stage and just be agnostic about the numbering. <laughs> they had some upper stage issues. Uh, it looks like they had, uh, it looks like the engine cut off early. Well, that that is what happened. Um, I guess the question now is why, right? So any speculation as to why? I've heard some speculation that it has to do with basically a problem with the oxidizer. I don't know if it's a fuel mixture ratio thing or who knows what. From what I read, so Virgin Orbit did put out a, a, a release giving an update, but their update really just called out the anomaly happening and kind of told you when things were happening and at what stage uh, the anomaly was uh, occurred, but not necessarily that what caused it. So I think it's still uh, unknown, although uh, they're obviously doing an investigation to see what kind of corrective actions are needed. So what's really a big bummer about this is this was you know, potentially a very historic loss or uh, mission because this was the first one uh, off uh, British soil, right? Mm -hmm. Right. They, they second right, the UK. No, second. I think it's the first. Didn't they fly? Like the British did fly something, but they flew it like in Australia or something. I think. Well, I mean, Wallace and Gromit. Right. Wallace and Gromit went to the moon. <laughs> Sorry. Presumably yes, okay. off of <laughs> British soil. I don't remember the movie too well. Like I, I'm joking here, but like they said that on their on their launch. Uh, live stream. They said it was the second launch after Wallace and Gromit. So I feel pretty well confident <laughs> okay. making I this correction here. I, I, no, I, I agree. If, if they pointed that out, I want to respect that 100%. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And so the uh, the first, uh, this, yeah, this would have been the first non-Wallace and Gromit launch, which, uh, you know, claymation free. <laughs> there you go. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which which is which is a total bummer. Um, specifically, they were flying over uh, the south of or south of uh, Ireland, uh, where this all took place. Um, and yeah, and obviously, I think David part of the reason why they would get more uh, press than uh, the other launcher that suffered an anomaly within 24 hours of this one is that you know Richard Branson is a maybe a household name. You know, he's certainly a mm -hmm. very famous. A billionaire. And so, um, but there's just been trouble. I mean, Virgin Galactic, obviously, right? We haven't talked about it on the show in at least over, at least a year, right? Because there's just mm -hmm. nothing happening there after their, hey, we want to have our uh, inaugural flight. And they kind of went out of the envelope and it was all sorts of trouble. And so they've, so they're hemorrhaging money. There's all sorts of problems happening. Uh, and evidently, they're even restructuring their uh, leadership after this most, uh, or, Virgin Galactic is restructuring their leadership, so there's a lot of problems going on with uh, within the the Virgin uh, space side, I guess, of their their company. I don't know if they still do records and whatnot. Yeah, I believe the the leadership restructure was um, at, right ahead of uh, Spaceship Two's uh, upcoming launch. 
Mm. Um, I think that's what the restructuring was for. Like what, or the, the timing of it was relative to that, not relative to, um, to this anomaly launcher one. Yeah. So they, they made it to orbit or they made it to space. Didn't make it to their orbital burn. Their Twitter account had what I'm assuming is a scheduled tweet go out before the orbital burn was supposed to take place that said mm-hmm. they had successfully reached orbit. And I think that's, uh, somebody in, uh, in the PR department, not quite getting the whole concept of orbit and just going, Oh, space. Okay, great. We'll schedule that for this time. And then they wound up having to delete that tweet. Um, and I, I think somebody in the chat (laughs) pointed out, uh, this could be a real issue, uh, as it, like if it's considered a false statement to investors, this, this tweet could have legal repercussions, but I kind of doubt that's going to happen, but it sucks getting that close you know, to success. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously like, you know, I want to root for them and all the different companies. And so, uh, it seemed like launcher one was the, the, at least that side of their, uh, space flight business was going, uh, well, um, they hadn't had a, a, an issue in a while, but, uh, I guess we still have, uh, the first successful launch from, uh, the UK, uh, up for, up for grabs grabs. because at first you were going to have to uh, sorry the first non-climation launch from the UK because at first you were going to have to make the distinction between this being a horizontal launch versus some of these other companies that want to launch vertically but uh, Mm -hmm. but yeah so so we've got the three we've got uh, Cornwall which is where this one came from and this is right the southwestern little corner of England and then you got the two that are up in the in Scotland so you got Saxaford and Shetlands Shetland Islands oh right and I can't remember which is which but one of them is like super like the most northernmost island on there and so basically like an Arctic launch site that's Shetlands okay Mike in the chat pointing out something uh, hilarious right now which is that they should have stuck with the tried and true claymation approach truer words never spoken um so we don't we don't know too much about what actually caused the failure i'm hoping that we get to learn more about it but apparently their um their burn ended prematurely um so it's not like they got to us you know they're stable okay we're gonna sit here and wait for circularization coast um because there there was a pretty good gap between um seco and their uh circularization burn um, so it's not like they were coasting and then, you know, something overheated and, and blowed up. Yeah. I mean, uh, hopefully we'll learn more. I kind of doubt that we will, but it, it'd be really cool if this was a follow-up that we could do later on. All right. So the, the other failure, uh, like you said, Dennis, 24 hours later, almost exactly 24 hours later was unfortunately ABL. They finally got, uh, <laughs> got through all of the scrubs and they, lit their engines and didn't go very far. Um, so this was the demo one mission. Uh, their launch attempt was January 10th at, uh, 1827 hours, uh, Eastern time. And so they, they lit all nine engines. They made it off of the pad and then all nine engines shut down. According to ABL's press release, they said all nine engines shut down, uh, simultaneously, which, it's really not good. That's a it's a very big issue if that's happening, I'm assuming. Uh, they fell straight back down onto the pad and exploded. Um, they didn't disclose uh, what altitude they reached or how long their vehicle was in flight. I did happen to find um, some rando on Twitter who claimed that they were watching uh, live footage from the ground. Um, and they estimated the rocket got up to about 1500 feet. So th- there's really good imagery on Twitter. It's like this nice, uh, like jitter gram, like it, it flashes back and forth between two different, um, frames from satellite imagery and it, it shows their launch pad and you can see a big black scorch mark. And it's, I mean, it's within 500 feet of the launch pad. So I kind of doubt that they made it up to 1500 feet um, and were able to fall straight down. Like first off, by the time you're getting into, you know, the thousand foot altitude range, you're starting to see pitch over. Um, And second, even though they uh, did a couple of scrubs due to weather, I don't think that they had perfectly still uh, wind at this time. So actually, you know what? Now that I look at this jittergram, 
I think they landed right on top of the launch pad. I, I assume the launch pad was across the street, but I think that's actually their, one of their assembly buildings. So like <laughs> they re- they got high enough to explode their rocket, but not much higher. It, it just sucks, man. But you know, ABL is following uh, in very good footsteps. Um, Astra uh, basically has done every mistake that you can, especially uh, launching out of uh, um, out of the Pacific spaceport complex. But I mean, like these are these are small launchers. They're built quickly, uh, or, you know, designed quickly. Like there's a lot of things that can go wrong. At, the, at this point, it's a little bit of a of a, a badge of pride, I would hope. Pro- probably not. Like people really would <laughs> rather launch successfully on their first try, but you know we're not going to judge them. Very understandable. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, there's also on Twitter footage of uh, of the smoke plume from a pretty good distance away. Uh, nothing super fascinating, you know. It's just kind of like a miniature uh, mushroom cloud looking thing rising up out of the the smoke. If anything, it's you know showing off how beautiful Alaska is. And yeah, that's that's kind of it for demo one. Um, ABL has a second launch permit filed with FAA um, for another mission. It sounds like it's almost identical to demo one. Uh, by the way, demo one was uh, flying two 6U CubeSats for Omnitech. Um, it was headed to a 200 by 350 kilometer orbit. And it looks like their second flight is, is doing the exact same thing. They tweeted uh, ch- that they're chomping at the bit for flight two, which is great. Who knows? Like, it, depending on what their failure analysis shows, like this may be just a, a quick turnaround, or it could be, hey, we're going to have to delay this flight um, so we can fix some stuff. Uh, we will find out. Like, n- nothing to say right now, but we'll find out in the future. I hope the uh, the ground infrastructure isn't too jacked up. Yeah. Because yeah. they use the same propellants that Astra did when they had that whole issue where they had to decontaminate the launch site and everything. And so, mm. I mean, it's locks and RP-1, but it's still not good to have it all over you. Exactly. And and that's a good point. I forgot to mention that, yeah, there was pad damage, but there were no injuries. And that's mm. why we can be a little flippant and we can kind of laugh and joke because mm. nobody got hurt and it's it's just hardware. We can, we can rebuild it. All right, uh, we're back to doing three short and sweets again. Dennis, you have the first one, and what is it? First up, Soyuz OneWeb hostage exchange negotiations underway. Following last year's invasion of Ukraine, Russian Soyuz launches from French Guiana had been canceled, resulting in components of the launch vehicle stranded overseas. These include the Soyuz STB stages, propellant containers, and support hardware. However, given that 36 OneWeb satellites also found themselves stranded, this time in Baikonur, after the company's 14th launch was canceled post-invasion, Ariane Spas is reportedly exploring a deal for the exchange of the satellites for the Soyuz rocket components. Such a deal would have logistical challenges, for example regarding visas and travel, and according to industry sources, negotiations are moving slowly and may result in the deal needing to wait until the end of the war. Alright, next. Uh, JWST is killing it. Every space mission, but particularly those as expensive as JWST, is engineered to outperform its requirements just as a safety margin. JWST, however, appears to have left just about every single safety margin intact and earned universal praise during the American Astronomical Society meeting this month. It demonstrated four times the required target tracking rate while observing the DART impact. Pointing stability is six to seven times better than the design requirement. Practically the only thing that isn't better than expected is luck. The primary mirror has taken 21 micrometeoroid hits, including the once in five years impact that flooded headlines back in May. And then finally, Starship approaches a launch date, question mark. So we don't know yet. SpaceX recently tweeted that it is preparing for launch of Starship and is moving ahead with final tests. It has even stacked a ship and booster in anticipation of launch. However, there have been estimates of launch dates in the past that have not come to pass. SpaceX still has to meet all of the FAA requirements including 75 environmental requirements, though the FAA released a statement that not all of the requirements must be met before launch, as some of them do involve post-launch activities. So maybe it will launch, but... Oh, and also just to clarify, they're saying maybe as early as March. 
I believe, or maybe even February, but in the next few months. So that's what we're looking at. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not super confident, but <laughs> that'd be something to see, though. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have five winners. We have Deathkin, uh, Cy Kyle, Chris Hoffman, Coaster Gallery, and The Greek. And the clue was fire in the hole which I thought was a pretty easy clue, and turned out it was. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't too bad. Uh, the event was the 22nd of January, 1968, and it was the launch of Apollo 5. Yay! Does this cover all the Apollos? Have we covered them all in, on this week's Space by History? That's a good question. Close. They come up pretty regularly, and there's only so many, so we must yeah, be getting They're close. well distributed throughout the year. Mm. A, a little heavy towards December, but... So the objective of this launch was to test the ascent and descent propulsion systems of the lunar module, the LM. Due to delays in the LEM development, uh, it actually ended up being launched on the Saturn 1B that would have launched on Apollo 1. So, of course, if you remember, there was that tragic fire and that vehicle never lifted off. Um, and I guess I never thought about it, like what happened to that particular you know, rocket. And it was relatively unscathed. I don't think that there was any damage done to it, actually. Um, so they just, uh, I guess, moved it into whatever like building they keep that thing in and then they rolled it back out when they needed it. So it was kind of like kept this backup because uh, there were so many delays that they, for like whatever reason, had to take the initial launch vehicle off the pad and then they just replaced it with this one. Uh, I'm not too sure on what the requirements were. Maybe, I, I know we've talked about in the past, if it's sitting on the pad too long, you can get some structural damage. So I'm assuming that that's what happened. Hmm. Uh, so they had to switch vehicles. But yeah, this was an interesting launch. So this is a Saturn 1B that was missing some stuff. So it was only 55 meters tall. This didn't have the CSM and it didn't have the launch escape system. So uh, like you didn't need the service module. You don't need an escape system, obviously. Um, it was really just the dilemma adapter. And that was it. And that just sat on top of the second stage. So you kind of had, you know, that big, uh, I guess it's more of a fairing and it kind of like opens up or first you jettison the nose cone, uh, that thing opens up and then you launch the lem. Like, I mean, mm. that's all that you needed to do on this particular mission. So they didn't have that other stuff. It also had an incomplete environmental control system, which I guess is not a big deal. And it had uh, the windows were actually covered with aluminum. And that was because of a shattered um, or a series of shattered windows that happened during a test of the lem five. Uh, so they were doing a pressurization test and it somehow shattered the windows and they thought, that it might not be safe to use actual windows, so they just covered them with aluminum. Um, pretty weird. I'd never heard about that happening. Hmm. Um, that doesn't seem to bode well. I mean, obviously they fixed it, but I didn't think it would, like no matter what the pressures you would be working with, if they were something that a human could tolerate, I would think that certainly the windows could. So they usually try to, uh, you know, not make you feel scared by always talking about how the windows are like the strongest <laughs> part <Yeah>. of them. <laughs> right. Well, that's kind of how I think of it. I don't remember what they're made of, but I mean, they don't shatter easily. So <laughs> I don't know what, what, what caused that. But yeah, so the, the launch was successful. Uh, the second stage and the limb were uh, delivered into a 163 by 222 kilometer orbit. 44 minutes later, the nose cone was jettisoned and the limb separated from the adapter via the RCS. So basically it had to use its reaction control system because normally, remember, you would have, uh, you know, the command service module that would actually separate and then like turn around and then pull it out. Um, but you don't have that in this case. So uh, they had to get it separated somehow. So it actually used uh, the RCS thrusters, which I thought was pretty cool. That is really cool. So basically some things went wrong here. So I'm going to, and I've done this before, I'm going to talk about the planned test, like what was supposed to happen and then what actually happened because there's they are two different scenarios. So um, again, this is to test the LEM. So the planned test, um, and specifically it was to test the engines, I should say. Um, this is all about, um, this is all about like the descent burn and then the ascent burn of the crew ascent vehicle. So, so the plan test was a 26 second burn at 10% thrust to put the LEM into a 330 by 215 kilometer orbit. 36 minutes later, uh, they would do a landing simulation burn. It would be 12 and a half minutes long with a first 10 second burns at 10% and then 50%, uh, then 30 and 40 and 20% thrust. So they do all these uh, various thrust profiles. And then after that, for the remainder of the burn, they do 92.5% um, thrust. So that was the plan. And then that would put it into a 318 by 307 kilometer orbit. And then from there, they do what's called the fire in the hole test. And that's where the clue comes from. So fire in the hole. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the reference is to mining. And we've all heard fire in the hole, you know, yeah. like you plant an explosive. I guess they thought of this as being somewhat analogous. So the idea is that during an abort, during descent to the the moon, um, like if you had to abort back to lunar orbit, uh, you would actually first, uh, I guess, reorient 
uh, the descent module to burn as long as it can to get you back up into orbit. Then you would turn on the crew ascent engines. So, and that would happen while it's still attached. So basically you have this quick sequence of events where the descent stage spends its fuel, but it's still attached. And then simultaneously the ascent vehicle would then kick on its thrusters or, you know, like its main engine rather. Um, and that would somehow cause the separation. I'm sh- I don't know if there's actual separation mechanisms. I'm pretty sure that there is. In fact, there's yes. a, what like explosive bolts. Yeah. So, so during an escape back to orbit, I guess those would have to fire and it's not the ascent stage itself that actually detaches it. Um, and it still sounds pretty dangerous. Like, you know, like even if it goes nominally, because you have, that descent stage attached, and yet you're firing the engine. So just uh-huh. imagine that. And if you look at the mission patch for this, you can see kind of mm-hmm. like you get a somewhat decent visual of what that would look like. It's basically an engine, yeah, firing with something directly beneath it. So on a on a nominal ascent, you would uh, release those explosive bolts, and the gravity of the moon would just hold the ascent stage um, in place. Um, explosive bolts and um, Mike points out guillotines for the, uh, for the cables. And you would just kind of sit there nestled in your little nest. And then you would light the engine, the ascent engine and go back up to orbit. Um, That was also called a fire in the hole configuration. And so you're right. It's, it's mining uh, there. The idea is like you yell fire in the hole to warn people when you've got like, a detonation that's about to happen in like a confined space because it's a mine and like you need people to make sure that they are out and safe. Right. So it's like that warning. And so doing this uh, during descent as an abort is, I mean, pretty simple. I mean, like it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, And the reason that they would abort using the ascent motor instead of the descent motor is just down to thrust to weight ratios. Remember the descent motor had two throttle settings, just two. Um, one was above one to one or a thrust to weight ratio of one. And the other one was below it. And so you're uh, thrusting hard enough to slow yourself down or you're thrusting hard enough to not fall quite as quickly. <laughs> like that, that's really the option. Um, and so doing an abort with the descent motor just isn't going to happen. It's, it's really tuned to do the descent. The ascent motor uh, had much more power, relatively speaking. And one of the things that I really love. Oh, okay. So Mike's got a little, a little context for my context. He says, uh, it depends on how far into the descent you are. There are two buttons, abort and abort stage. The former turns around and uses the DPS to get you back into orbit while the latter does staging and uses the APS. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, am stuck in a very particular regime, which is the, the, um, high altitude or, or I guess the low altitude regime, which doesn't quite match the situation here. And so, the the ascent engine is like this critical feature, right? It is what one of the main components that fulfills the don't leave an astronaut on the moon requirement, right? That's an absolute requirement of the system. Um, and so the ascent motor, this is getting a little bit out of context, but the ascent motor is fascinating to me because it's uh, a you know as close to a fail proof motor as you can have. Um, the thing was so uh, redundantified. Did you guys know that you could uh, ignite the ascent engine even if the computer was completely turned off? There was a, a, like a pole inside the cabin that, and you can just yank on this cable hard enough and it will pop the igniters open and uh, and start the engine hmm. running. I did not know that. That is wild. <laughs> that is wild. And without a computer, I mean, how successful would the remainder of that ascent and it do, it doesn't be? really matter. I mean, probably not very successful. Um, and, and like, I don't know, I don't know what the throttle controls look like. This is like one isolated piece of knowledge that I have, but it, it kind of doesn't matter because you can solve that problem. The the real key, like you could, you could even potentially have the astronauts banging on the walls, you know, bouncing back and forth to reorient the thing. The key is like, we're going to give them every opportunity Oh yeah, Mike points out that the APS doesn't throttle, but I, I, I mean like being able to shut it down, right? Because it, it does have a shutdown, shutdown, and even a restart capability, I believe. I was reading through the through the 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 manual 
uh, earlier this week and I, I picked up a couple little things and forgot others. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it really just comes down to making this thing as foolproof as possible, like making that control independent from other systems, whether those systems are working or not, you know, you can get that engine running and you can at least get off the surface. Like, you know, you can imagine some really crazy, like Kerbal space program solutions where they light the engine and like fly up to a certain altitude and then pop open the door. You can't do this, but you know, pop open the door just to blow the, the scent module into a different orientation and start thrusting uh. sideways. I mean, like it's all ridiculous, but like, you know, <laughs> they were options and that's really, that's really the valuable thing. Yeah. And you brought up a good point that I kind of forgot, which is this whole abort scenario is pretty similar to what already happens when you're on the ground. I mean, mm -hmm. you are going to be lighting that engine on top of something. It's, it's just a matter of making sure those connections are severed. And from right. what you said, I'm guessing that from what you said that once it's landed at some point, pretty well before they, you know, do the ascent, um, those connections have already been severed. And so they know that they're in the clear there. Yeah. Or is that something that happens just, you know, just seconds before, which doesn't seem like a good idea. I, Mike will totally uh, correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it was one of the first things that they did preparing for an ascent or it, it was part of the ascent preparation. And because, you know, they landed and then immediately were like, okay, are we going to abort? And then an hour later, are we going to abort? And then five hours later, are we going to abort? I I think I th I think it's sitting there disconnected for quite a while. I could I could be way way off base, and it's yeah the instant before. But isn't there like the footage of the of it taking off, and doesn't it seem like bolts fire? It seems like it. Yeah, I can see the debris in my head. I didn't realize that that would have been from the separation. It could have just been the engines like blowing something that's been cut. They're loose. blasting the descent stage. So yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I assumed it was. It's hard to say looking at it because I feel like the, all that debris could just be debris that had already been created, and then the engine just scatters it. You know. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, I can't. Yeah, you can't really conclude it based on that. So I just pasted a link in the. Uh, in the Discord, and it's a really, really good document. It's the Lem Familiar Familiarization Manual. So yeah, I actually had this wrong. Um, I thought that it would have been one of the first things they would have done, um, just in preparation for all of their post-landing abort go-no-go -no -go moments. Um, but actually, yeah, it is um, in line with um, the the liftoff sequence and. Looking at the LEM, uh, I think this is particularly the LEM 10 to 14 familiarization manual. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't say exactly when it happens, but the sections go um, ascent propellant, tank pressurization, and then stage separation. And then, so I'm, I'm assuming that these are in... Uh, chronological order. And it <laughs> says the ascent and descent stages are separated just before lunar liftoff or if necessary in the event of a mission abort. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty close. It sounds like. So yeah, I, I wonder if they ever studied firing the ascent engine without firing the stage separators. Like mm -hmm. I think that they were very confident in those things. Um, so there's like explosive circuit interrupters to just make sure that the, the electrical connection is dead. And then they have, um, explosive, like, um, what do they call them? Severable joints, uh, explosive bolts that physically separate the two stages. And then they have, um, a guillotine to physically cut the cables as well. Um, c cables, um, as well as water lines because they, they had a, uh, the water lines there. Um, and then they light the engine. But my understanding just from a very quick look at this document is that that happens after the ascent propellant tanks are pressurized, which would also make sense, right? You, you would like to keep everything connected in the case that you have to troubleshoot the propellant tank. Uh, pressurization, but the pr the propellant tank pressurization system was also a bunch of uh, explosive bolts, well, explosive valves, py pyrotechnically actuated valves. I'm I'm assuming uh, is the proper name, but to uh, um, basically connect the helium pressurant to the to the fuel and oxidizer tanks. That's actually a really cool subsystem. At some point, we need to do a deep dive into the ascent. Uh, ascent engine uh, propellant pressurization system because they they did some really clever things inside that system. That PDF looks awesome. <laughs> Isn't that a great PDF? 
And and also while while I got the mic, let me point out um, Dustin from Smarter Every Day um, talked to one of the um, control system engineers uh, for I think Saturn. I I will put a link in the show notes. It was very very good. Um, he did a long version and a short version and I just put the long version on and let it play while I was working. And it was just so comforting to hear lovely Southern accents talking about rockets for an hour <laughs> and an, an hour and a half, maybe like it's a long video and it's, you know, Destin asks a lot of the same questions that the three of us would ask in that situation. Mm. And they're, you know, they're standing in front of a Saturn five and it's, it's really cool to hear, um, somebody who worked on the vehicle, uh, get to go, Oh, well right over there. And he pulls out his laser point. He's like talking about it while he's like pointing at the actual structures, uh, in an actual Saturn. <laughs> so getting back to my bullet points here. Um, the final part of the plan test, uh, was a test of the RCS propellant draw from the tanks, which would be performed with a 7.5 minute burn. And that too would change the orbit. And that would put the ascent module into, um, an 815 by 315 kilometer orbit. So as you can see, the orbit's constantly changing as they do all these successive burns. Um, so that was the test. And um, uh, so moving on to the actual test. So what happened? So basically, after it had uh, successfully gotten to orbit, uh, the initial test, which as you recall, was uh, a series of burns. And this is uh, a series of burns with the descent stage. So yeah, the actual test. So during that first initial burn, which was uh, supposed to be for 39 seconds, that burn was actually aborted after four seconds. And that was due to a leaky fuel valve. So this is interesting. So basically, this is a leak that NASA had known about, um, that they had actually looked that they, they even had to separate the ascent and descent stages and, you know, take a look and see what they could do. They arrived at the decision, strangely to me, I mean, I don't know why it couldn't just be fixed. I suppose it just would have set them back even more. And so they actually decided uh, to actually delay the arming of the engine until the time of ignition. So basically, there actually would be a delay in the thrust. So that's what happened. So basically, the LIM computer read this as a lack of thrust, which it was. Um, and uh, since that occurred during the first second and a half, when it should have been reading um, a certain amount of thrust being generated, um, and that didn't happen, it actually aborted the burn. And what's weird is that this could have been pretty easily accounted for had the programmers of the LIM computer known about it, but they didn't because they were not told. So there was a failure to communicate there. <laughs> and that's what led to this. Uh, it seems like a pretty, I mean, so it seems like several failures, right? Like they didn't fix the leak in the first place, which I guess they maybe just didn't have time to. Um, but then they also didn't fully flush out that contingency scenario or not the contingency, but you know, like the alternate plan of uh, disarming it. But luckily flight director, Gene Krantz, uh, the legendary Gene Krantz, uh, he decided to do a manual test and um, they shortened the duration of that second burn sequence. And, and that was in order to keep it over US tracking stations. I'm not sure why that was important, but I believe that they were having communication issues as well. Um, and so they did a 20 second burn at 10% thrust and then seven seconds at maximum thrust. 32 seconds later, uh, they did another burn at 16 seconds or four 16 seconds at 10% thrust and then two seconds at full thrust. So obviously they shortened this test a whole lot. They didn't do all those, you know, like 10, 20, 30, 50, 20, whatever, um, those random uh, burns um, or seemingly random. Um, and then at this point, uh, the ascent propulsion system was ignited and the descent propulsion system shut down. So again, this is something that happens pretty much simultaneously. Uh, you cut those pyrotechnic bolts or whatever, um, and then you have like your abort to orbit burn. And that lasted um, 60 seconds. And then after that, they eventually did a six minute and 23 second burn, which was just to deplete the APS fuel. One other thing that happened was that eight hours later, uh, the ascent stage, um, it actually spun out of control and that was due to a guidance problem. So they were having some guidance issues. But what's weird about that uh, is that uh, the test was deemed a success and that they didn't do an additional LEM test because they had one planned, which was for the LEM2, but that test was canceled since this one went so well, despite the fact that some things didn't go so well. Um, so yeah, they didn't do that test. And actually the LEM2 was put in the National Air and Space Museum. Uh, so that's the one that we saw when we went to DC. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> I do recall looking at it. Yeah, that was a LEM2. So it would have been part of a test uh, were it not for this one being so successful. And I use that in scare quotes. <laughs> but yeah, that's a pretty cool um, Apollo mission, right? I mean, it's, it's one that I'd kind of overlooked, didn't give it much thought. Just the fact that they stuck just the LEM on top and used the RCS for it to kind of deploy. Yeah. I, I like that alone, I thought was just fascinating. <laughs> All right, David, thank you for covering one of my favorite topics, which is any topic that has to do with Apollo. Um <laughs> 
Okay, so next week is going to be the 24th to the 30th of January. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1985, from Lunar Orion to Listening Orion. All right. If you think you know what this very good clue is referencing, send in your guests, shoot us a tweet, use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. We have four launches and one spacewalk, actually. The first launch is a Falcon 9, and that is launching GPS-3, um, SV-06. The launch window for that is on January 18th from 12 UTC or 1200 UTC to 1236 UTC. So about 36 minutes uh, launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. Um, that one should be pretty easy to watch if you want to. So check it out. And then going across country, we've got another Falcon 9, and this will be taking Starlink Group 2-4 to orbit uh, to LEO. And so uh, they are currently targeting January 19th at 1523 UTC. And uh, you know the story. It's a batch of Starlink ones, and it's flying out of Vandenberg, Space Force Space in California. After that, we've got the spacewalk that David mentioned. Um, this is going to be uh, space, U.S. Spacewalk 84. Um, this is um, another one of the IROSA spacewalks. That's uh, going to be Koichi Wakata and Nicole Mann. On the spacewalk, they will be assembling the mounting brackets uh, for the next pair of IROSAs. Okay, so Spacewalk 84 will be happening on Friday, January 20th. The coverage is going to begin at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. The Spacewalk is expected to begin around 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time, and it is scheduled to last uh, close to seven hours. That's a new uh, duration descriptor for me on NASA TV. Uh, <laughs> right, seven hours. Uh, all that is in Eastern Time, and all of that will be viewable on NASA TV. After that, on the 23rd, uh, we have the launch of an electron and and this is with uh, Virginia is for launch lovers. So this is the one that I believe was delayed a couple times. So we'll see if it uh, lifts off this time. It's a rideshare mission with three Hawkeye 360 satellites. And we have a launch window of 2300 UTC through 0100 the following day. I'm launching from uh, Wallops in Virginia from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 2. Uh, so yeah, check that one out as well. And hopefully, you know, it will actually launch uh, this time. This will be cool. And then Ben, you'll, you'll actually be able to see this one, right? Hopefully. Yeah, I haven't actually looked to see what the what the actual viewable area is going to be, but um, hopefully, yeah, I'll be able to look out the window and see a launch plume. And finally, we have an old friend we haven't seen since 2021, and this is an H2A202 uh, rocket. And so uh, coming from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries in Japan. And so it'll be taking the IGS Radar 7. Uh, IGS stands for Information Gathering Satellite, which is basically Japanese spy satellites. And uh, the idea is to launch this one out of Tanegashima to the sun to sun synchronous orbit. And so the window is on January 25th from 0100 UTC to 0300 UTC. All right. So those are your upcoming space flight events. Which means it's time to debut the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike Deathkin, Mr. Cesium, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, The Greek, and Cy Kyle for joining our recording session today and helping us make Kirchen Burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.